Hi, it's Steve Indig at Sport Law. Leave me a message. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Hey, Steve. It's Dina. You aren't going to believe what just came across my desk. We need to chat. Give me a call. Welcome to the latest episode of Sportopia. Where is our conversation about healthy human sport going to take us today, Dina? As we welcome the warm spring air, we thought we'd spend an episode talking about special meetings and annual general meetings. This episode wouldn't be complete without involving our special team member, Jason Robinson, our certified parliamentarian. Welcome, Jason, to the episode today. Jason's been a part of the sport law team since 2015, and he's our resident expert when it comes to all things parliamentary procedures, Robert's rules, and how to chair a productive board meeting. He's got lots of stories to share with us today, and we're really thrilled to have him join us. We're going to invite Jason to tell us a little bit more about himself in just a moment. But before we jump in and bring Jason to this table, Steve, what's coming across your desk this week? Well, we love our director and producer, Taylor, who's limited my ability to talk <laughs> about the three or four things I want to to one. Only but, one. Uh, only, only one. one. So today I'm going to talk about succession planning. And we spoke about this on a previous podcast about trying to plan for the future with respect to not only staff, but board members. And I have a call this afternoon about a retiring executive director who will be leaving his sport after several decades and, of course, wants to leave that organization in a good spot. So we will be speaking about some of the services that sport law can provide to the client to help them through the succession process. And and maybe we'll end up helping them find their new executive director or we may be acting as their interim executive director during that process. So I really... As you know, Dina, a lot of what I do will call is, is negative or sometimes moving sport from point A to point A. What I like about this type of work is it it really has an opportunity to, to bring sport forward and, and bring great opportunity for a, an organization. Well, you've learned a few things, Steve, from me around grief and loss companioning. And so don't be surprised if in your support to this sport leader today that you start to feel that he feels or you sense that he's he's sad, right? That he's leaving an organization he's been supportive of for uh, all these years and trying to be very mindful about what comes next. So I'm I'm grateful that you're there to support him. And it it connects, I'm gonna build a bridge from what you just shared because my story has to do with a tragedy actually that occurred last month. And uh, it was in a, a small community and a volunteer died. Tragically, he had a massive heart attack. And the trauma that ensued for the people that found him and conducted CPR, and it was really uh, um, traumatic. And so the ED of the provincial association knew about the work that I did, so connected me with this this uh, gentleman and we spent about an hour together helping him process what he had been through. And the, the gift of that, he said, like there were many things that we talked about, but the thing that was most sticky for him 
at towards the end of our conversation, after exploring all kinds of things that he was doing and holding and still grappling with, I suggested or offered writing the letter and then burning the letter and how the ashes would kind of connect with this man that he had never met, but had somehow it was, it's such an intimate thing to be trying to save someone's life. And so he felt like there were still some things he wanted to say to this man. So from, from me to you and, and to all of you who are listening, acknowledging that trauma can come across our lives in many different ways and being prepared and, and reaching out and getting support is, is really important in the early days so that you don't continue to carry that with you until the next life occurrence. So that's what I was dealing with. You always leave me speechless. And and how do we transition that conversation into parliamentary procedure? So, (laughs) well, you want me to give it a go? I think a lot of people who are board of directors right now, Jason, are probably grieving, grieving the old ways of doing business, grieving how we used to be able to just have these meetings and have our say, and it wasn't so complicated. So how's that, Steve, for a transition from what we just talked about to welcoming Jason? Welcome, Jason. What a segue. (laughs) Jason, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and and how you ended up in this really cool spot within uh, the sport law team? You know, it's crazy because I I joke with a couple of my old university buddies about Robert's rules. And, you know, we had it in one of our sport management courses and, and I just loathed it. They're like, you do this now for a living? Seriously, you know, it's funny how things go in circles in our lives, but I've spent a lot of time, you know, in sport, like the rest of our team members. And in that time, you sit through so many meetings and, you know, some of them are agonizing. Some of them go really well. You learn from both and you always try to be better. And, And I think at a certain point, I looked at sort of specializing in this area because sport organizations need so much help. I want to see us get through these meetings as effectively and efficiently as possible. So uh, for some reason, I started to kind of geek out on it and, you know, take to it. So I don't know if that means I'm like a really rigid person in my normal day to day, because I don't think I am. Maybe this is sort of like my Superman geek Roberts cape that I put on to counteract my goofy self-deprecating nature. I don't know. I don't know why, but here I am. Did I answer the question? I love that, Steve. Jason, yeah, I like the Robert's cape. That will be a classic line that will stay with us forever. I wonder, Jason, if you could provide a little bit um, of information to our listeners about what it means to be a certified parliamentarian. I think a lot of people claim to be parliamentarians or have expertise in parliamentary procedure, but what does it mean to be certified? Well, to take it one step further back, when you say the word, you know, most people can't even say the word, right? I, Jace, here's Jason, our par- parliamentarian person. Thanks. Appreciate that, Steve. Um, I mean, a parliamentarian in a nutshell, if you really distill it down, if you if you contextualize it in the world of sport, we're kind of like a referee for meetings, right? So now we don't have a whistle. We're not making the rule like the call. That's the chair, the presiding officer of the meeting. But at at the end of the day, we're kind of like that meeting referee to make sure that we're following the rules to help the members, to help the chair. And so to be certified in that, it essentially means that you have a level of expertise to be able to hopefully give the highest level of service and know the book 
you know, Robert's Rules of Order, which is this 714 page, you know, Bible of mine that is my job to know inside out. And the reality is, is it's super dry, boring material. And nobody wants to read it. Nobody wants to know it. So that's what we're here to help you do. And you balance that with whatever the governing act is, whatever your bylaws or your constitution says. So it's making sure that you follow all of the prescribed rules for your meetings. And that's what a parliamentarian helps you do. Wow. Sounds like fun. Mm, Yes. (laughs) Super, super sexy topic. I know. You know, what's really interesting, Jason, I was seeing your eyes light up the way that mine do when I talk about death and loss. And it's so much, it's so funny because most people can't say parliamentarian. Well, most people don't know what thanatology is, right? And they're like, thana what? <laughs> so, which is the study of death and loss. So I, I love that uh, you and I are geeking out on, on the kinds of things that most people really don't want to talk about. So what I would love to know, maybe let's warm ourselves up a little bit here. It's really important to give our listeners, maybe some basic foundational fundamental literacy as it relates to some basic board meeting information. So, you know, maybe get us started with, so what is an AGM, an annual general meeting, and what is a special meeting? Yeah, sure. So firstly, you said board, but we need to switch that to member, right? Because, you know, that's where the SGM and the AGM come into play. So it's separate from the board meeting. It's it's really about the members and it's the meeting of members. So the annual meeting is that typical meeting. You know, it's that regularly scheduled meeting that you would have once a year. Some organizations also have semi-annual meetings. So they're doing one scheduled roughly every six months. But that's where you're conducting the business that you're essentially legally bound to do. You've got to appoint the auditor. You've got to conduct your elections. You've got to approve previous minutes from the past annual meetings. You've got to present financial statements to your members. So those are things that an, a corporation is bound to do on an annual basis. So that's, you know, and there are other things you might bring forth by law revisions. You do annual reports. Maybe you approve membership fees, but there's certain things that you need to do annually. And then a special meeting is any other meeting of the members that is properly formally called that's in between those annual meetings. So they can be held as frequently or infrequently as possible. And the difference there is they're held for a distinct purpose, right? So it's typically one or two, it's typically one, but it can be a couple different items of business for which that meeting is specifically called. So it's, we wanna revise the bylaws. So we're going to call a special meeting to do that versus waiting for our annual meeting. Or unfortunately, you know, we want to remove a director, something to that effect. These are the two common reasons why special meetings are often called, but it could also be for any other purpose. Okay, great. Thanks, uh, Jason. What are you thinking, Steve? Well, I was going to ask Jason about some of the trends in meetings. And COVID, of course, had a massive impact on the Mm -hmm. way in which meetings are conducted, Jason. I remember you and I having conversations two, three, four years ago, where, of course, you were extremely worried about being able to chair or act as parliamentarian for meetings when there are no meetings because we weren't able to to gather and maybe you want to speak to what's happened over the last three or four years and, and some of the pros and cons of, of what's happened uh, during post pre or during COVID and, and post COVID. 
Yeah, well, we gathered virtually, right? Everything shifted to virtual. And so we pivoted at Sport Law and we acquired a subscription to the Simply Voting platform to help our clients to make sure that they're having votes that are verifiable, accurate, can be properly counted. So that was a, a, a way that we were able to shift and, and help everybody. And, and now we're starting to see, you know, sort of post-pandemic-ish, whatever space we're in right now, we're shifting back to this in-person trend. So probably 30% of the clients that I supported virtually during the, the main pandemic years have gone back to an in-person process now. But that still means about 70% of them have remained virtual, right? So organizations are recognizing the cost savings associated with staying virtual, you know, wider access and participation because we have people who can't travel to certain locations for an in-person meeting. I think to some degrees, to be honest, it's easier to control a virtual meeting. And so depending on the nature of the business, you know, we see that happening. So a lot of organizations are, are staying virtual. One of the things that I'm also starting to see now is, is the concept of the hybrid meeting. I'm just going to be blunt. Don't do it. Okay. Don't do hybrid. It's an animal, right? Because when you think about it from just a like logistical basis, like registration and voting, when you're trying to properly manage it in two different formats at the same time, so many things can go wrong. The reality is I've, you know, participated in probably, I'll say roughly 20 hybrid meetings over the last year, and they're super clunky. I've probably seen one or two of them done well. So do the math, 18 of them were not. That's a trend that we're, we're seeing, starting to see a little bit more of. It's this virtual world that we're in now. I think sport organizations are realizing, hey, this conference that we used to have every year, and we would have the AGM as a little part of it on you know Sunday morning. I think they're realizing, oh, let's, let's keep the AGM virtual right? And get, do the formal business stuff at that session. And now we've got an extra two to three, even four hour window on Sunday morning that we can utilize for education, for workshops, for sharing of best practices. So it's actually helping to expand those conferences as well. Yeah. I, you made me laugh, Jason, because earlier this year, I was supporting a client in one of those special general meetings on a very juicy topic, shall we say, and it was a hybrid meeting. And as you said, it was a beast. It was clunky and it was bilingual. So you can imagine not only were they trying to deal with the hybrid and, and ensure that everybody in the roll call and just the management of that alone, and they didn't have any external support. So it was their secretary, I think, that was managing all of this. And she looked so pale and was, you could feel the frustration. And then the frustration of the people who had traveled from far to be there. There's about, I don't know, 90 to 100 people in the room, which is extraordinary when you think of a special general meeting. And so uh, I completely appreciate what you're bringing forward and getting people to choose, right? And so hybrid, that mushy middle is not something that you would uh, suggest. So that's really helpful. So beyond all of that, some of the trends that you're seeing, Jason, Let's talk about ways in which we can help the members and the board who are there, you know, elected on behalf of the members to improve their member meetings. Are there some insights that you can share with us after having served as a parliamentarian and done dozens and dozens of these meetings 
Sure. I've got lots to share. And, you know, I've got a, as you both know, I've got a couple of blogs on our website that, you know, talk about these sort of things. I've got a new one coming out about special meetings specific. And I've got a couple of blogs called the Virtual Meeting Roadshow, which share some of those fun stories and learnings. And oh boy, I've seen some stuff. You know, we talk about the expectations of sport organizations as 21st century businesses, right? So there's there's an expectation to have a professional standard, whether it's around safe sport, whether it's around your strategic planning, your communications, all those things that, that you and Steve have already been talking about, that should extend to your member meetings as well. You should be providing a certain standard of professionalism to your members. It means delivering a proper meeting that isn't a gong show that follows the rules. We're there to take care of very important business. Yes, it's boring, dry material, but we need to do it right. So I think more and more organizations are starting to realize that you need to do the work. You need to actually prepare months in advance, not, oh, crap, our AGM's in two weeks. We got to get our, you know, our act together. That's not the way to do it, right? So preparing well in advance making sure that you're following all of your prescribed governing documents. So you, you need to know these. These are your, like, they're like your compass, right, for holding a meeting. So what's, what's your governing act? What do your bylaws, your constitution say? Do you have any special or standing rules? Most organizations don't, but they're kind of, they're in that layer of the cake, we'll, 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 go, we'll say. And then your parliamentary authority, which is typically Robert's rules of order, but there's a couple others. I won't bore you on that stuff. But You've got to know the basics of all of those things and you've got to follow them, right? Especially your bylaws in the act. So what do your bylaws say about giving proper notice, you know, about the what your prescribed agenda should be, all that stuff. Just follow it. It's It amazes me how many people don't follow it, Dina. It's ridiculous, right? So, you, you know, you've got to make, because if you don't, then your members show up to the meeting and they're upset. You know, why didn't you do this? right? It, it's prescribed for you, right? So, so do that. So I think more organizations are, are realizing that, that they need to prepare months in advance. They need to give proper notice. They need to communicate more effectively. That's a big one. Um, you know, I just mentioned the word communicate effectively. And I know the two of you have been talking about this on the podcast. It amazes me how many people think they communicate effectively when they don't, right? So what well, we posted on the website, the AGMs on August the 3rd in Ottawa at this venue. You posted it one time. Did you use social media? Did you send out a member newsletter? Did you repeat yourself a couple of times? Because we live in a world where we're just hit by wave and wave of information and we don't process it all, right? Did you put out a proper call for nominations? Did you echo that call? You know, so there's so many different things that you can do to communicate more effectively. Frequency, volume, Omnichannels, use everything at your disposal and contribute your, you know, your time and energy to effective communication. So again, that's a that's another tip. I'll stop there. I could go on, but you know, beyond all those things, hire a parliamentarian. That'll help you, you know, go a long way in making sure that you're prepared for all the potential what ifs. I love that, Steve. So and Jason, you're really humble. So when you say hire a parliamentarian, that says a lot because I was just in a meeting and I think I was sharing with you, the two of you before we started chatting and it was, you know, the chairperson, bless his soul, you know, has lots and lots of experience, but he doesn't know the Roberts rules and gets caught up at an emotional level because some of the stuff that's coming forward is really divisive 
and people start attacking each other and using disrespectful language. So Steve, I know you've got some follow-up observations because you yourself have, have chaired and or served as a parliamentarian at many meetings. So, yeah. It's a great segue to my question, Jason. As, as Dina just alluded to, I have taken on many roles within members' meetings as the chair, as legal counsel, as advocate. And I've been yelled at my fair share of times, and I'm, I'm sure you have. So I have a two-part question for you. You know, one is, how would you recommend to a chair or, or even yourself on how to manage that disgruntled member? And then after you answer that, I'll come back to my second question. Okay. Well, the disgruntled member is always is always the fun one, and it's, and it's oftentimes you know why I get that nine one one call, right? Oh, you know the troops are rallying here, and and they're coming to get us. And how do we stop them? Well, first of all, it's not our job to stop your members from sharing their opinions. So I think that's kind of the first step is realizing. It's okay for people to, to disagree. It's okay to be unhappy about the way things are going, to have different perspectives. And we should never prevent people from sharing those. It's just that we need to do it in a, like Dina said, in a respectful and orderly way when we get to the meeting. It doesn't mean you, Steve, get to show up and start hurling insults at people or ignoring the chair and just talking and talking and interrupting others and so that's where the role of the chair is, is really super important. And it's tough. Chairing is tough, especially when you're not someone who's experienced in that lane, which is most people, right? It's typically the president, the chair of the board, who's tasked with being the presiding officer for these meetings. They do this maybe a couple times a year. They don't do this for a living. People come in all different shapes and sizes. Some are timid, some are aggressive themselves. Others are in between. So just managing that can be super, super challenging. And that's why when you have a parliamentarian at your side, it helps the chair to recognize, okay, this is where I need to be a little firmer. This is where I need to stand back and let the, let the member go and maybe go a little bit over time so that they can properly inform the members, share their perspective. So it's like a give and take process, but there's also sort of a kindergarten teacher aspect to it as well, where you've got to put your foot down at times. And, and that's on the chair, not the parliamentarian, right? The chair is the one that makes the rules that sets the tone. So that's where it becomes even more tough. That's why I prefer to chair contentious meetings. Because I practice this stuff and I, when I do this, you know, I'm, I'm in roughly 75 meetings a year. So I have a little bit of, of background. With well, I think that, it's right? important to distinguish that when you're chairing, you also don't have a vested interest in the outcome. When I, yeah, when I'm chairing too. So that's why it's, it, it is nice to have an independent chair come in. So that makes it easier for the president of, of the board, for example, if they want to contribute towards the conversation. You know, it's interesting, Steve and, and Jason, in a recent conversation with someone, I said, oh, you're suffering from PBB. And they're like, PBB? What's that? People behaving badly. Uh, I, I, I went to peanut butter, so sorry. I was with you, Jay. I <laughs> when you have someone like Jason or Steve or, or someone else just there presiding over the meeting, ensuring the the rules of the pool are being followed, monitored, measured, adhered to, people start to check because they have an external person coming in and, and maybe will self-regulate their emotions and be a little bit more polite than they would if someone 
wasn't there. So I, I do, I do see that as a benefit of having an external person who has expertise and can control the narrative so that, you know, good dialogue can, can occur. So I, I do appreciate that. I know that Steve's going to jump in around some additional tips as we start to close off our conversation, Jason. And one of the things that I, I do as a facilitator is I always start with a, an invitation for us to be respectful, open-minded, curious, to maintain confidentiality if that's relevant, to listen generously, right? To reflect our values in our decisions. And I'm curious, as a parliamentarian, do you recommend that people start with what I call the human side of the experience of the engagement? Do you recommend these rules of the pool, so to speak, that are more humanistic in their flavor? Well, I believe in rules of the pool and their rules of procedure. And I, and I believe in mapping those out, you know, at the onset of the meeting. Are they humanistic? Well, I mean, the, the, the intent is they're, they're there to preserve the rights of the collective, right? So when we establish rules that say an individual, a member can only speak up to two times per motion or up to three minutes, you know, per speaking opportunity, that's to preserve the rights of the rest of the group. It's so that, you know, Steve doesn't bully the whole meeting and, and take it over. You know, establishing rules around respect and orderly conduct are important so that when, I'm picking on you, pal, but you know, when Steve, you know, starts making accusations and he's interrupting others, it's easier for the chair to say, now, hang on, Steve, you know, at the onset, we went through the rules of procedure and we said we weren't going to do this. So I'll just ask you to hold your thoughts. You know, I'll come back to you. Right. So there's your humanistic, softer way of addressing it versus saying, you know, Steve, shut up. Right. Because that's not the way to handle it. Right. Because that's only going to escalate things. So the role of the chair is to be that calm presence, follow the rules, stay as stay rigid, but be soft if, if that makes any sense at the same time. So and in the virtual setting, pre-distributing those rules in advance, right? So we've sent them to you. We're going to verbally review them. Here's the rules of the pool. Let's go. That, that speaks, Jason, to the second half of my question. And we, we're both familiar with a parliamentarian who's predominant in Canada, and we've both seen him in action. And, and one of the things that I saw attending a meeting as, as legal counsel, and he was acting as parliamentarian, was somebody was trying to do something. And the language the member was using was not appropriate. So the parliamentary shut the motion down. It was an improper motion. Yet the parliamentarian could have easily told him what the proper motion was. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, because not a lot of people speak Robert's rules and understand motion to table, motion to adjourn, motion to set aside. They're all you know, when you look at them from a high level, all sound very consistent. But of course, being a certified parliamentarian, you would understand the the variance between those three different motions I threw at you. But what do you see your role as? Is it an educator or is it as rule follower? I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Yeah, it happens all the time. Really good question. It's, it's a case-by-case -case basis, to be honest with you, because... <laughs> The reality is, is I know the specific example you're speaking to. And in that instance, this particular member was there to thwart the meeting. It was evident, right? 
And so when it was clear and obvious that this person was just basically trying to cause a mess, the parliamentarian that you're referring to who was chairing just shut it down, essentially. At the end of the day, you know, we're not there to shut people down. We often get that from board or, or staff where it's like, Jason, we need you to help stop this person. Well, I'm not there to stop people, right? Just there to help people follow the rules. And so depending on the situation and more often than not, it's more of a conversation to say, well, thank you, Steve, for that motion. It's out of order. This is why I would suggest to them the proper way to do it. Perhaps you were trying to do this. Perhaps you were trying to postpone to a committee and this committee would report back, blah, 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 blah. So I think, again, sort of recognizing that we want to help the members where we can is typically the way to go. But when you have, unfortunately, situations where people are just there to be a disturbance and not contribute to a productive meeting, to be honest, I'm less inclined to help them. And it's not our job to teach people at the meeting Robert's Rules. It's our job to make sure that it's followed. So that's where we can be more rigid and rules. Yeah, this is a really important information, Jason. And I can see how the virtual meetings has been really helpful for those that are presiding over meetings because everybody's muted. They have to raise their hand and, you know, often ask to be unmuted. Or there's some ways you can use technology to help guide people to be more respectful follow their turn, so to speak. So thank you for, for sharing all of that. I'm curious, you know, uh, do you have any final tips? If there were three things, for instance, that you would advise sport leaders who are preparing for their AGMs, their meetings? Mm, three, You're putting me on the spot here. So I talked about the value of preparation, about being prepared months and months in advance of when your meeting is going to be consulting with a parliamentarian to walk through all of the key what-if scenarios in advance. That, that's why a, par- a parliamentarian is like insurance, right? It's to help you navigate potential forks in the road when you get to the meeting. And most of that work is done in advance of the meeting, right? So that's really key to go through some of those gray areas in advance so that if you're presented with that situation, your chair knows how to effectively respond. So, so that's kind of one. I think organizations, I talked about sort of looking at their AGM, kind of like it's a nuisance. Stop doing that. Stop looking at your AGM like, oh, it's a problem because I hear it all the time. Like, oh, great, Jason, we've got our AGM coming up. We need your help, right? No, we, we need to shift our mindset and how we, we look at our member meetings. We need, we need to use it as an opportunity to build our reputation, our brand, and how we collaborate with our members. Like, let's turn this into a positive. Let's not approach it from a negative mind space. I think the other thing is to provide more group opportunities outside of the AGM. So oftentimes the AGM is the only time when we're all getting together. So there's like this expectation of, well, Steve's going to show up. He's going to want to talk about this item for half an hour when it's not even on the agenda. So we get to the meeting and we say, no story, Steve. We're not here to talk about that. That's not on the agenda. And Steve is throwing his hands up in the air saying, well, when the heck am I going to get the chance to talk about this with the group? So have more group sessions, you know, town hall, council meetings, whatever they are outside of the AGM. So the AGM can focus on the key business. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really key. And then there's that contentiousness piece again. 
I think you wrote in your recent blog, you know, we need to be more kind. We have to stop looking at these meetings as an opportunity to fight. I think, Steve, we've shown up to an AG AGMs before when a boxing match broke out, right? Like we've, we've seen this stuff. I'm trying to think off the top of my head, Jason. I have seen a board member get punched in the face. I have seen t-shirts being given out to indicate what side of the meeting you're supporting. I have seen meetings get canceled because too many people showed up in the room, didn't have the uh, firefighters permit to maintain the meeting. So you're you're absolutely right with respect to the preparation, I love the suggestion that you've given about having more members meetings, not necessarily one that requires parliamentary procedure or an annual meeting. I do agree most people see the annual meeting as an opportunity to talk about issues that they have. And really, that is not the right place for it, as the agenda is fairly strict and, and tight with respect to the requirements of your annual meeting. The other important issue that I see is new business, is that organizations have to be aware of how they accept new business, particularly from the floor. At one client, somebody in the audience wanted to cancel their sponsorship agreement, and everybody in the room agreed, except for one board member finally had the know-how to indicate that a termination clause on that sponsorship was $250,000 to get out of it. So very important to know how new business gets to the floor and also allowing the board or staff an opportunity to be aware of what's coming so they have the proper answers prepared or at least the knowledge that it's coming to to be ready yeah and that just ties again into members making informed decisions yeah i i really love the you know how we're putting a, a cherry on top of this conversation and as you said jason it it's about people management and so when people say, oh, it's people behaving badly, I always ask the people that we're here to support, what is it about the current situation that has your members really upset? And often it's, as you started with the Jason, poor communication, trust has been allowed to erode, usually because there's been very little to no communication. There hasn't been a sense of connection or opportunities to have meaningful dialogue outside of the AGM, which can foster trust. And what we know is sport is a microcosm of society and society right now generally is looking at any kind of institution with a lot more skepticism and lower trust levels. So we're seeing that play out in these AGM forms. So I so appreciate how I'm going to use the word generous, you know, listening to you and, and being a voice for the members who have the right to ask questions and participate and be engaged. I think our, our listeners will take a lot away from your expertise and the way in which you've been learning lessons, valuable lessons throughout the, the pandemic and now beyond. So for me to you, thank you for really being generous and sharing all of your wisdom. Steve, any last uh, words of wisdom from you before we, we say goodbye? That's a loaded question. <laughs> Oops, let's take it back, Jason. Otherwise, we'll be here for another you hour. could be here for a long time when you give a lawyer an opportunity to speak freely. No, Mr. I agree. Mr. Parliamentarian, with... Jason, any? Peanut butter, peanut butter, peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I like, Jay, you alluded to it at the beginning was how dry this is. And I always say that being a board member should be boring. What I mean by that is you end up talking about bylaws and policies and strat plans and and budgets. And I think we could we could lump parliamentary procedure into that group, but I have thoroughly enjoyed today's conversation. I think we could go on 
for another hour. I know I have lots more questions and hopefully you'll come back again uh, to continue this conversation. We've linked a few of Dina and Jason's blogs in the episode notes below where you can learn more, as well as we have a recorded webinar that dives deeper into parliamentary procedure. Thank you so much to all our listeners. We are so grateful to share our vision of Sportopia with you and to elevate sport. The number of listeners we've had to date has far exceeded our expectations. So thank you to everyone who has taken the time out of their busy lives to listen to us uh, chat for about 30, 40 minutes uh, once a week. To have your say in Sportopia, email us at hello at sportlaw.ca or on social media at sportlawca to let us know what you want to hear next. Stay tuned for the next episode.